You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's July 4th, 1910, Reno, Nevada. More than 16,000 fans pack into a wooden arena, eyes fixed on the boxing match below them. Everyone is focused on the two men in the ring. They've been at it for nearly an hour and cracks, at least in one of them, are starting to show. In one corner is Jack Johnson, the reigning heavyweight champion of the world and the first black man to ever hold that title. In the other corner is Jim Jeffries, a 220-pound former champion who'd come out of retirement strictly for this, to take that title away. Jeffries has been nicknamed the Great White Hope, and this match, it's billed as the fight of the century. The crowd, which is almost all white, is at full-throated volume and clearly in support of Jeffries, as are the bookies. No one seemed to consider that a young black man at the height of his abilities and strength, the best in the world, could beat a man who had to lose 50 pounds to get in shape in time for the match. No one, of course, except for Jack Johnson himself. He is calm, confident. He is ready. Nothing Jeffries does phases him. He is just waiting for the right moment. And then it comes. The 15th round, Jack Johnson throws a flurry of punches. They catch Jeffries and send him to the mat. It's the first time Jeffries has ever been knocked down in his entire career. The crowd is shocked. They shout at the great white hope to get back up. He manages to stumble to his feet, but Johnson hits Jeffries again. The blow knocks Jeffries back and he falls out of the ring. A fan rushes to him, pushes him up, but Jack Johnson is ready. He charges and lands another hard right. Jeffries stumbles for the third time and goes down. 
The match is called before Johnson can deliver a knockout, saving the great white hope from the ultimate embarrassment. Jack Johnson, a black man, has won the fight of the century. In a time when white America can barely recognize the humanity of black people, he was unequivocally the best in the world. He was also rich. He earned over $65,000 from the fight, more than $2 million today. In white America, it wasn't happy. In the hours that followed the fight, millions of white Americans seethed. They took to the streets. They rioted. They set buildings ablaze and terrorized Black neighborhoods across the country in payback for Jack Johnson's victory in the ring. Jack Johnson won the fight of the century in 1910. Daddy Grace started his church nine years later in 1919. And when he too became famous and amazingly wealthy, he also triggered much of that same racist anger that Johnson did. He may not have literally beaten up white men to get his wealth and power, but to many, it felt much the same. When a Black man, especially one in the first half of the 20th century, stands proudly on the world stage and declares himself a man equal to all others, and that same man is also rich and powerful, that means he is an advertisement for Black self-worth and a direct attack on white supremacy. So whether he is a professional boxer or a preacher, that Black man will need to be put in his place, if not by riots, then by the power of the state. I'm Marcy DePina, and from iHeart Podcasts and Forza Media Group, this is Sweet Daddy Grace. Now, children, we are indeed glad to be here at this hour. Aren't you glad? is a show about Daddy Grace, but it's important to remember that he was also part of a time and was impacted by others in the culture. Jack Johnson was a powerful force in the early 1900s, but it's more than boxing. He upset the social contract of America. He was a Black man who believed his success entitled him to whatever pleasures he could afford. For him, this meant white women. American culture was not ready for Jack Johnson. He was unapologetically Black at a time when just being Black at the wrong place and time could get you murdered. Jack Johnson was such a domineering presence in the culture. He changed how Americans viewed not just him, but all successful Black men, including Daddy Grace. 
So Jack Johnson is another one of these, you know, flamboyant African-American men, right? I mean, coming out of Galveston, Texas, the Galveston Giant, the first decade of 1900s wins the you know, heavyweight championship of the world. And, and he wasn't quiet, right? I mean, he was like, one, I'm not only going to whoop up on white boys, right? But I'm going to date your women, right? Oh, like, Jack, what are you doing, my man? That's Dr. Hassan Jeffries again. He teaches and studies the civil rights and Black power movements at The Ohio State University. So Jack Johnson becomes a target. And so because he was that flamboyancy, not only in the ring, but also saying, I'm going to date your women too, they literally create a law that says it's illegal to transport a woman from one state to another, across state lines, federal law, for the purpose of prostitution. That law, it was called the Mann Act. It was passed in 1910. It forbade the transportation of, quote, any woman or girl for the purpose of prostitution or debauchery or for any other immoral purpose. It was intentionally broad, which is why it was used against Jack Johnson. If you could just be shown that, you know, you had a companion crossing state lines, the logic in the minds of white supremacists and any jury, white jury in America, black people could sit on juries was no white woman would in their right mind want to be with you. So therefore, she must be an immoral actor and we can get you for that crime. So Jack Johnson is charged, he's found guilty and he leaves the country, right? Because he's going to be arrested and thrown in jail for several years during the height of his boxing prowess. As Professor Jeffries points out, the Mann Act and laws like it, they were all part of a bigger plan to stop Black men with power and sway. Black men like Jack Johnson. Black men like Daddy Grace. How state actors defined powerful really had to do less with sort of intellectual ability, but those who develop a mass following, right? And especially, it's one thing if you got Negroes following you. It's another thing if you got Negroes and white people following you. Because that has always been that sort of red line that white power has always worried about. That has always been the great fear. And so what we see with Daddy Grace in saying, I'm only going to speak to integrated crowds, is he's not abiding by the lines of demarcation that have been established to keep Black people and white people apart. And even if it's just a handful of people who are going to be connected or going to come over, that poses a real threat. When a Black man was unafraid to stand up for what he believes in and seemed fearless in the face of white authority, that man was often considered dangerous, especially if that man could command a crowd. Marcus Garvey was another such man. Like Daddy Grace, he too was an immigrant. Like Daddy Grace, he was also a captivating figure. He spoke out for his people, not only for Black people in America, but for the liberation of Black people around the world. But by doing this, Garvey became a target. In fact, he marks the beginning of the rise of J. Edgar Hoover, the future director of the FBI. At the time, though, Hoover was still working his way up through the Justice Department, and he was tasked with taking down Marcus Garvey. Hoover understood one important thing about Marcus Garvey and men like him. They got their power from the people. 
So the only way to destroy that power was to ruin those men in the eyes of their people using allegations, rumors, and printed lies. So Hoover did something he otherwise would have never done. He hired the Bureau of Investigation's first full-time Black agent in order to infiltrate Garvey's social justice movement. He knew the most effective way to attack Garvey was from the inside. It worked. Garvey was soon charged and convicted of mail fraud. After he served prison time, he was deported. Using Black secret agents became a favorite tactic of the government as they tried to destabilize other Black-led efforts like the Civil Rights Movement and the Black Panther Party for self-defense, or leaders like Noble Drew Ali, Elijah Muhammad, and Malcolm X, and also Daddy Grace. In 1941, with World War II raging in Europe, the FBI received a tip from an informant that Daddy Grace was a communist and that he was trying to incite his followers to riot against white people. So they sent agents to church services to see if they could pin anything on him. It's kind of ironic if you think about it. Because of all the claims against him, being a communist was perhaps the most far-fetched. Daddy Grace had fully embraced capitalism and understood the power of money in America. It was so clear that even the FBI agreed. After a few months, they dropped the investigation. But that doesn't mean that they were happy about it. I think it's important that we understand that these things are not accidental. There is a pattern of targeting influential African-Americans who have this large following. J. Edgar Hoover, he's, he's motivated by this idea, and he writes about this in the late 1960s in a memo, internal memo designed to explain America's counterintelligence program, which was those efforts designed to undermine civil rights of Black power activists. He writes, our principal objective is to prevent the rise of a Black messiah. This is what he had always been worried about right, is the rise of a Black Messiah, whether we're talking about Marcus Garvey uh, or Jack Johnson uh, or Stokely Carmichael or Martin Luther King or Daddy Grace. Minister Louis Farrakhan, who's headed the Nation of Islam for the past 40 years, has also been a target of the FBI. So he is more than aware of how rumors were used to discredit powerful Black men, including in Daddy Grace's era. As he told an audience in 1983, There came strong voices of liberation. Marcus Garvey, Noble Truth, Ali. And in that same era, you get a man like Father Divine. Daddy Grace. And Prophet Jones. Now you may say, oh look, don't tell me about them charlatans. Hold on. We're not going to deal with what people were or are by characterization. I want us to deal with what they contributed to our being where we are. They taught us something if we open our eyes and look. Daddy Grace did have a lot to teach, and he did a lot for his congregation. But he was also a man with flaws like everyone. And in some instances, some of the rumors did have merits. So even as Daddy Grace fought the fear-mongering of Hoover, 
the government and the press, there were Black people voicing criticisms worth listening to. For one, Black women had to pay for his ascent and satisfaction. Throughout his time as the head of the church, there were rumors of affairs and illegitimate children. And there were other troubling accusations, ones that led to a Manac trial of his own, and ones that nearly caused his downfall. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation, I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In 1934, Daddy Grace was tried in a New York City court for allegedly violating the Mann Act. The government claimed that in 1932, during a car ride from Brooklyn to Philadelphia, he had tried to rape a House of Prayer member, Minnie Lee Campbell, then around 18 or 19 years old. And that later, while at his house in Washington, D.C., the same one I walked by and marveled at, he had convinced Minnie Lee to sleep with him. She later had a son, who she named Charles, after the man she said was his father. Even though what happened to Minnie Lee was at the center of the case, Minnie Lee's well-being didn't seem to be of much concern to anyone, including the press. It was more about Daddy Grace. Newspapers covered what he wore, what he said, how he and his followers, many of who were in attendance at the trial, behaved. Daddy Grace's lawyer did focus on Minnie Lee, but mostly to try to prove that she was promiscuous, meaning that her son Charles, well, his father could have been anyone. And the prosecutor for the government seemed only mildly interested in what Daddy Grace's intentions with Minnie Lee were, 
Instead, he was more fixed on discrediting the United House of Prayer. He questioned Bishop Grace about the origins of his church, his religious training, and what he actually did in his role as a preacher. Reading between the lines of this not-so-subtle racism, the question seems to be, how could a man who looks like this have so much power? But did he do it? Daddy Grace was found guilty by a jury of 12 white men and sentenced to a year and a day in prison. A week after the trial, Daddy Grace was preaching in Newport News, Virginia, defiant in his conviction and proclaiming his innocence. He appealed to the crowd, saying only the court of the Almighty is the one who can pass judgment. Conviction is not guilt. Christ was convicted, but was he guilty? He also appealed legally, and later that year, the case was overturned. It wasn't an absolution of guilt. The appeal was on a technicality about what had happened where. If the alleged crime had happened in D.C., then the New York court didn't have jurisdiction. But for Daddy Grace, it was good enough. He was once again an innocent man. Though he didn't address the trial explicitly again, the entire experience and the support he got from his congregation must have stayed with him. You hear it in this sermon, which was recorded near the end of his life. Remember what I say, if we together, we'll stay together. Because together we will stand. But divided, we will fall. Honestly, I've really wrestled with how to tell this part of Daddy Grace's story. He lived such a monumental life, and I want to make sure that the legacy he built through his church isn't forgotten. But I also have a lot of hesitation uplifting someone who could be a sexual predator. And knowing how my grandfather, a man so well-respected in the Cape Verdean community, was against Daddy Grace, that also gave me pause. Was my papa right? I mean, Daddy Grace did try to get my Nana, who was just a teenager, to go off on the road with him. The toughest part has been that so much is still unknown, and Daddy Grace and most people who knew him personally aren't around to fill in the blanks. So I've just tried to look at the facts that exist. On the one hand, you have a documented pattern of the government using the Mann Act to try to take down powerful Black men. Men they felt disrupted their social order. On the other hand, basically everyone from the prosecution, the defense, Daddy Grace himself seemed to have very little consideration for Minnie Lee as a person. In 1934, there's no believe women narrative here, especially if it's a black woman. And from my contemporary perspective, it's hard not to see the power dynamic between Minnie Lee, a young parishioner, and Daddy Grace, the much older, much wealthier leader of her church. But still, I want to be fair to Daddy Grace, to measure him against the standards of his own time. Men in the 1930s were, rightly or wrongly, given a certain amount of latitude in their behavior towards women. And the Mann Act, it does have racist origins. 
So as I often do when I find myself needing to make sense of contradictions, I sat down again with Daryl Stewart, a producer on the show. Sweet Daddy Grace did a lot of good for his people. We are we cannot argue that. We know that. But he also had a lot going on. Is it possible for a person to have both light and dark, to do both some great things and to also have some areas that, as my third grade teacher would say, needs improvement? <laughs> what are your thoughts on that? I believe the answer to that question is yes. I think that it is possible to be both a man of faith or a woman of faith and also be a person that is that has faults and flaws and is with sin. We are Mm -hmm. here on this earth living a human experience. And part of that experience is making mistakes. And I think that there's not a person that doesn't have those things. I think that it doesn't cancel out Uh, the good that you may have done or the leadership that you may have. Do government leaders, cultural leaders, spiritual leaders have a different responsibility because of their title, because of their position in the world? Or are we all offered or should we all be offered that same grace? Mm -hmm. Right. So here's here's the play on words, grace. I do believe that everybody should have a certain amount of grace uh, afforded to them for whatever transgressions they may have. However, I do think that when you're in a position of leadership, that there's a certain amount of responsibility that's been placed upon you. And I think that you are going to be held to a different standard because you're in a position of leadership. People are looking up to you. Can you make mistakes? Yes. Can you be forgiven for those mistakes? Yes. Daddy Grace was sentenced to prison for a year and a day after he was found guilty on a charge of violating the Man Act. So Daddy Grace got involved in a thing. And I want to say for me, as um, a lover of history and as a Black man myself, I understand that sometimes these webs can be complicated because there's so many different lenses by which to look at this, right? But I'm curious to know, what do you think this was all about? What do you think this was really about? So, okay, my initial sort of reaction to this, and especially after my conversation with Dr. Jeffries and having a bit more understanding about why the Man Act was created in the first place, which, of course, gives me a lot of pause. But in thinking specifically about Daddy Grace in this case, it's it's confusing to me. Now, is it possible that they had a consensual sexual interaction? I think it is possible. Uh, Daddy Grace was a man. I mean, this is a man who had a lot of power, who... And resources. And resources, and could do pretty much whatever he wanted. So did he maybe find this woman attractive? And did he maybe say, hey, you know, I'll give you a job and, you know, hey, let's let's have a good time tonight. You know, Mm -hmm. I think it's curious that he did provide her with some measure of financial support. um, That she did... And she did accept it. And she did accept it. Mm Mm-hmm. So... I think it's quite possible that something did happen between them. And I also think that it's quite possible that 
especially in that time, that that could have brought down Daddy Grace's entire mission because people would have slandered him. And I I think there were way too many things at stake for something like this to bring down the whole entire church. There's too many crowds to be fed. I'm so glad that you mentioned public ridicule. We know that being a preacher in the Black community comes with a certain amount of public ridicule. The men envy you because of the perceived power, authority, and anointing. The women fangirl after you're adorning you with words of affirmation and gifts of hospitality, their Mm -hmm. loyalty and service. But in some ways, that also makes the leader vulnerable. Do you think that Black preachers and other religious leaders were maybe jealous of Daddy Grace and or white preachers and leaders? And would it have benefited them to participate in the assassination of his character? Yes, I do, actually. I think it's really difficult to reach that level of success and not have people try to take you down and be jealous, but not just jealous. Because to me, jealousy says, you have something that I want, but I can get it if I work hard enough. But envy is something entirely different. Envy says, you have something that I can never have. And I think a lot of people were envious of Daddy Grace because they saw that he was able to not only, it's not just about the wealth that he amassed, it's the amount of loyalty and you know belief right. in him that he had. And that is something that... Money can't buy. Money can't buy loyalty. Money can't buy followers. And I think what was probably most dangerous about Daddy Grace was the amount of power that he exerted over his congregation. And so I wouldn't think that it would be above the government if they were trying to find a way to bring him down, to tap into vulnerable people in his congregation that were close to him or were even on the periphery to try to find ways to take him down. It could be either or. It just depends on what lens you look at it. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true, and I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things, and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Uh, thank God for the limits. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation, I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating. And a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. 
I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Daddy Grace, like many of us, was a complex man. And not everything he did or said can be cleanly explained. That's added to some of the mystery and intrigue around him. I think there are parts of him we don't understand. So for that reason, people are maybe want to keep him at arm's length. They're not sure how much of his work should be celebrated or how much... Uh, there might be to be uncovered about something bad he did or something we won't like. But it, it revolves around these things of money and flamboyance and was he exploiting people? Those are all still questions that kind of linger. Dr. Marie Dahlem is a professor of American religion and associate dean at the University of Oklahoma. She's the author of the book, Daddy Grace, A Celebrity Preacher and His House of Prayer. And she is very familiar with the controversies surrounding him. I don't think he was trying to exploit people in the sense that some some people have suggested he was. I tend to think he was someone who was sincere in what he was doing, that he couldn't spend 40 years as a religious leader just pulling the wool over people's eyes. To the contrary, Dr. Dahlem sees how the way Daddy Grace behaved instilled a sense of pride and belonging to his congregation. The way he carried himself, the way he had people wait on him, he had a a hierarchy going that, that was palpable in the church. And I think there was something special about that. Um, people could feel like they were part of this really important church. They'd owned lots of property. There was lots of glamour attached to that. Um, But he had a status that was above them, right? And there was a kind of buy-in that was necessary to make that happen. But that doesn't mean that she also doesn't struggle with how to reconcile some of the contradictions around him. I hate to think ill of him because I feel protective of Daddy Grace. I I feel like so many people have tried to tear him down. I don't want to be one more person who's doing that. But in honesty, I think there's probably some truth in a lot of those accusations. Perhaps not to the extent and the extremes that people were saying. But, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if some of them were somewhat true. For example, the Man Act violation where he supposedly raped his female companion in the car as they were traveling. Um, Did he do that? I don't know. But I do know that when you read the transcript of the trial, it's very clear that all of the witnesses on his side were heavily prepared. They say the exact same thing. And it's, it's too close for coincidence. So there's something in there that he didn't want people to know. What, what did he not want people to know? I, you know, that's a mystery. And then there was the IRS. The IRS went after Daddy Grace repeatedly for not filing taxes, for failing to report income, for not paying taxes on the large offerings given to the church by its parishioners. He fought those charges, and he usually won. But it was constant. 
tax fraud? Yeah, probably. Uh, was that deliberate or was that just he wasn't fully aware of how one needs to manage a multi-million dollar <laughs> church? That's entirely possible, right? How would he have learned how to, to manage finances in a legal way? I don't know that he would have. So yeah, I think there's potential truth in all of that. But I don't think that's really what we need to focus on because who among us doesn't have a dark secret or two, right? <laughs> we just don't happen to be as famous. For many people in my family, especially the older generations, these secrets were enough to rule Daddy Grace out, to consider him a fraud, a crook, a con man, and to completely deny any relation. And though I don't agree with them, I understand where they're coming from. As Black immigrants, they were told by white society that they weren't worth very much. Their standing in America was fragile enough that they didn't want to do anything to disrupt it including associating with someone like Daddy Grace, who was considered so, as my Aunt Judy said, out there. What I have heard about Bishop Grace and all that he has brought to his people is something that we all can learn from. How about owning your own stuff? How about not having no debt? Not just about his long nails and how people would... What's the matter with daddy? He's all right. He taught and set the foundation for his people to be debt-free, mm. own their own property. Reverend Louise Scott Roundtree is a council member at large for the city of Newark, New Jersey. Her mother, Madam Louise Scott, was thought to be the city's first Black female millionaire. A self-made woman, she built her fortune by opening a salon selling beauty products, and later opening up multiple shops and even a beauty school. Reverend Roundtree is very familiar with Daddy Grace and everything he accomplished. Because in some ways, you could say that there are parallels between the lives of Daddy Grace and her own mother. You know, my mother had to work for what she got. She really carried God with her. Being a, an African-American during those times when, you know, racism was high and you had to have God because people would say some things to you that might make you either hurt them or you get hurt uh, by your response. In 1958, Madame Louise Scott purchased a 26-room mansion in the heart of Newark. It had been built in the 1880s by a local beer baron, Gottfried Kruger. The Kruger Mansion was now the Kruger-Scott Mansion. Many people couldn't believe a Black woman could own such an extravagant building. But for Reverend Roundtree, who grew up there, it was just a home. To be honest with you, I didn't know, have any idea of who my mother was. I didn't have any idea of where I lived. It was just all my life. It was like I didn't realize the greatness of any of this. And besides her entrepreneurial skills, Reverend Roundtree also admired her mother's commitment to faith. It's what drives her too. I oversee an interfaith alliance where I tell people that it's not about their religion, it's about humanity. So we're going to love each other, we're going to pray together. And I got that from my mother. My mother, I never saw her treat anybody different. Like she never put any airs on when she got in certain crowds. She was too busy being busy. Daddy Grace was also a busy man busy with his church, the members, and all of his enterprises. But here's the thing. With all his time spent on the House of Prayer, Daddy Grace's relationships with much of his own family were complicated. 
his two marriages ended in divorce. And in 1947, his son Norman was tragically killed in a car accident while on his way to meet Daddy Grace in Charlotte. The aftermath of his death strained his relationship with Norman's sister, his daughter Irene. They didn't seem to talk much after that. And his son Marcelino, from his second marriage, was diagnosed with schizophrenia and had problems with the law. Daddy Grace supported him financially for a while, but eventually seemed to distance himself from him. Reverend Roundtree understands how being a leader and being in service to other people can take away from your own personal life. Family gets really pushed to the side a lot because of the sacrifices based on what you've committed to or what position you're in. So in my case, there's a lot of things that I look back on and say I could have done different while working in government. Being a parent um, becomes a challenge. Doing things for family becomes a challenge. Um, trying to make time for you becomes a challenge if you're committed to the work. If you're not committed, then nothing's a challenge. You just do. Mm-hmm. But if you're committed, there can be multiple challenges based on what you have going on in your life. Daddy Grace did have family he was close to, family who were involved in the church, like his sisters Louise and Sylvia, who frequently accompanied him on the road, and many nieces and nephews as well. And of course, he was constantly surrounded by church elders, Grace soldiers, and Grace maids. But in many ways, he was alone. Dr. Marie Dahlem also wondered about Daddy Grace's personal relationships. He seemed to have a kind of on-again, off-again thing with the the first wife, and then the the second one was came and went fairly quickly. They just didn't quite add up to me, especially for such a famous guy. You think he'd want someone by his side who's the capable companion who can be the equivalent female in the church. It was surprising that he never found someone like that to to be there with him. You know, as a self-professed workaholic, I kind of took that as, I wonder if that's what it was. Like his, he was married to the church. That took precedence over everything. It seems like his work was the thing he was most faithful to his entire life. And maybe he didn't want to share that with anybody. <laughs> you know what? That's a really beautiful way to put it. And you may be totally right on that. Yeah, that's that was his loyalty right there. Daddy Grace was clearly a man on a mission, although there are differing opinions about what that mission was. No one can doubt that what he accomplished in his lifetime was momentous. Whether you agree with his methods or not, for him... It was about saving souls and making sure that his people were prosperous and living within the kingdom that he built here on earth. And to do this as an African immigrant, as a Black man in America, meant he paid the price. There is no doubt that he benefited from the spoils of his work, but constant surveillance by government entities around his church and his businesses, jealousy, mistrust by his fellow Cape Verdeans, Contentious relationships and family fractures were the sacrifices that he made to build his vision and fulfill the calling that brought him to America. My own family worked 
hard to distance themselves from Daddy Grace, even though there were multiple ties and connections. The feeling in my gut has driven me to find the truth, in spite of what people might think or feel. I've spent years working on this show, traveled across the Atlantic several times, and poured over documents trying to discover the truth. Is Daddy Grace really my family? And will I ever figure this out? That's next time in the final episode of Sweet Daddy Grace. Sweet Daddy Grace is a production of iHeart Podcasts and Forza Media Group. This show is hosted by me, Marcy DePina. It's written and produced by Marissa Brown and me. Our story editors are Daryl Stewart, Duncan Riedel, and Zarin Burnett. Editing, sound design, and theme music by Jonathan Washington. Additional editing by Matt Russell. Show cover art by Viviana Salgado of Studio Creative Group. Fact-checking by Austin Thompson. Our executive producers are Marcy DePina and Jason English. Special thanks to Will Pearson, Nikki Itori, Ali Perry, Tamika Campbell, and Lulu Phillip of iHeartMedia, and all of my family members who talked to me for this show. My ancestors, the United House of Prayer for All People, and the countless number of people who shared their memories of Sweet Daddy Grace with me. Thanks also to Dr. Marie Dahlem and Dr. Danielle Brun-Sigler, whose academic work on Sweet Daddy Grace has been incredibly helpful. And finally, I want to thank Bishop Grace himself for choosing me to tell his story. For more information on Bishop Charles M. Grace, check out the website Sweet Daddy Grace and follow me at Marcy DePina on all social platforms. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.